Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Madeline Stevens on her debut novel, Devotion. Madeline Stevens is a writer from Boring, Oregon, currently based in Los Angeles. She holds an MFA from Columbia University, and her work has been published in a variety of literary magazines. She spent seven years working as a nanny in New York City, which will become relevant when we talk about her debut novel, Devotion. Madeline, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you. Um, how would you describe Devotion, first of all? Um, it's a It's a literary novel that is bordering on psychological suspense um, or at least playing around with it maybe is a better way to put it and it's about a young woman whose name is Ella who's hired to work as a nanny for another woman named Lonnie Um, Lonnie is very wealthy and beautiful and Ella is very poor Um, and so I'm definitely playing around with class differences they're both the same age, and they sort of develop an unhealthy obsession with each other. And indeed, you mentioned that they're a similar age, and there are other seemingly superficial things that they have in common. For you know, they've both lost their mother at a young age, for instance, um, which are enough to build, I guess, a, a superficial bond, aren't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. Tell us more about Ella. So when we first meet her, she's she's in sort of a bad place. Ella is someone um, at the beginning of the novel that doesn't have a lot of attachments. She's sort of free-floating through um, New York City. And New York City is a city of, of extremes. You have extreme wealth and you have extreme poverty. And Ella is definitely residing on the lower end of that spectrum. Um, however, she has a lot of advantages herself that she doesn't necessarily recognize. She hasn't thought much about her own privilege when the book begins. She's she's merely thinking about all of the ways that the world has screwed her over. <laughs> And she's come from the the Northwest to New York. Why has she come to New York? She isn't sure why she's come to New York. Um, She came to New York in order to not be where she was from. And I think that 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 kind of sums it up. She isn't sure what she wants. She isn't sure where she's going. Uh, She's only sure that she's not headed in the same direction that she came from. There's the the thing about the elephant. I've not heard that before. Is that is that real? It is. It's a real. It's a real saying um, that the the pioneers would use when they set out on their journey across the United States. Um, the saying is, um, "Have you seen the the elephant?" And people who had made the journey would would ask this to their friends who were just setting out or just thinking about setting out. Um, and the elephant is sort of this. Uh, 
mythological idea that's both the dream and also the nightmare at the same time. So it's all of their hopes and all of the bad luck that might befall them along the way. And the the New York of the novel, I mean, obviously, as in reality, is it's obviously an attractive place, but it's also a place that is difficult to survive in for, for an incomer. Yeah. Um, I remember when I first moved to, to Brooklyn, there are these, uh, these cheap shops all over uh, Nostrand Avenue, which is over where I used to live. And um, there's T-shirts in the, the windows that say, uh, Brooklyn, only the strong survive and like things like that. And I think that that does sum it up to a certain degree. It's a place that's just incredibly difficult to live. It's, it's a big pain in the ass. Unless you have extreme amounts of wealth. Yeah, which we, we're going to come on to. So Ella comes by this job, basically babysitting for Lonnie and, and her husband James, which is not a job she's qualified for, really, is it? No. <laughs> she lies on her resume, which, um, which it's very easy to do when you're not working for a large company. Um, you know, you're as someone hiring a nanny, you're entrusting this person who's maybe working under the table for cash um, in a lot of instances. So there's no legal paperwork and there's not necessarily a lot of background checks or references called when you're not sure how many people you want to tell you're hiring this person. And also, I mean, you would think inviting someone into your heart, into the heart of your family, into your home to look after your child would be something that you would take care of but these people are incredibly wealthy and privileged and and it's something that they're careless with I guess they can be careless I think that Lonnie in the same way that Ella was sort of immediately attracted to and fascinated by Lonnie I think Lonnie was also immediately attracted to and fascinated by Ella because she possesses a sort of freedom of of movement of not having um, these expectations and restrictions that Lonnie does have in her very privileged world. Tell us something else about Lonnie then. Who is she? Where does she come from? So Lonnie grew up in the Upper East Side. I should say on the Upper East Side. I'm from the West Coast, so I say in the neighborhood and everyone on the East Coast is on. It's a a silly, funny thing that I get corrected on all the time. (laughs) Um, So she grew up on the Upper East Side. She went to a very wealthy um, private school that's right across the street from the Metropolitan Museum. And her um, father raised her on his own because her mother passed away when she was very young. And Lonnie has a complicated relationship to her father. She has a complicated relationship to all the men in her life is maybe a better way to put it. She feels um, she has everything but it's sort of become a gilded cage for her. And let's say something about James as well, her husband. Who is he? James is someone who once had artistic dreams and has since settled into a job working with Lonnie's father and um, makes a lot of money but isn't necessarily perfectly happy. Um, I think a lot of the men in the novel tend to fade into the background in favor of exploring Lonnie and Ella's relationship. Um, And, I mean, it seems like a stupid question to ask why, you know, why is Ella attracted to the extremely attractive and rich Lonnie? But (laughs) she gets entangled in this world and in their relationship and is both sort of 
entranced and repelled by it, enraged by it because of, you know, that sort of extreme privilege. So what does she see in it? I think that it's uh, it's difficult when you're working in and, and I'll say this from personal experience because I did work as a nanny for, for seven years. And it's very difficult when you're working in the homes of these very wealthy people to not sort of lead this double life in your head where you're constantly thinking about what you would do if you were in their place and how you would be better at raising their children if only it was you who could afford to have them and you would have decorated their house better and things like that. It's hard because you're there for maybe 10 hours a day. So, you know, long portions of your day. And then you go home to your your very dismal living conditions, or at least Ella does and, and I did at the time. So it's it's difficult to not become entranced and, and kind of carried away by these things. And also, honestly, the job, nannying, can be quite boring, um, especially when you're only working with one baby who maybe doesn't talk much yet. So it's very easy to let your imagination get carried away. And, and we're obviously only seeing this world through Ella's eyes. She's our narrator. And we're not going to you know, go into any, any detail of what actually happens in the book. We don't want to give anything away. But she's quite a complicated character and the relationship with, with this couple becomes complicated. So I guess we could, you know, she could be described as an unreliable narrator as well. So let's talk about why you wanted to tell the story from her perspective. Well, so the book is actually a sort of written document, and I wanted it to be that way because I wanted um, – so Lonnie is the writer in the story. When Ella starts working for her, um, she doesn't have a job, but Ella is hired in order to give Lonnie the space and the time to write. And Lonnie never really seems to be writing, though, and she doesn't seem to have anything published or um, Ella can't find any of her writing um, that she's actually done – And I wanted the book to sort of represent Ella switching places with Lonnie by the end of it. And so when you begin, you realize that you're reading the writing of the woman who wasn't the writer but has since become the writer. I also – I wanted the reader to never really hear Lonnie's voice and to never really read her journal entries or – even, you know, see the details of her home, even though you're getting so much information about these things. um, It was important to me that everything be filtered through Ella's perspective, because one of the themes of the book is that you don't really know the people that you're closest to. We can only ever experience things from our only perspective. And I think that has all kinds of other implications about privilege and um, how much you know the suffering of another person, um, and also the the claustrophobia of this this narrative, I think, lends itself a bit to the suspense, and also it lends itself towards your questioning how much you can trust Ella, which I definitely want the reader to be questioning. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Madeline Stevens. We're talking about her debut novel, Devotion. And Madeline, I guess I want to talk about how the book came together in a, in a couple of ways. But first of all, let's talk about your experience as a nanny in New York for seven years. To what extent did that inform the novel? Um, The novel isn't based on any family that I worked for. Lonnie and James are invented characters. Um, Definitely certain aspects are taken, both of them as well as the setting. It's taken from places that I've been and people that I've met, not necessarily people that I've worked for, which I feel it's necessary to mention because some of my employers have been amazing people and have continued to be super supportive, even knowing what the book is about. But It's impossible to not draw from your own life, especially when you're writing a character that's so close to what you've been through. I think that Ella is sort of the darker side of my own personality. And while I was working for these years um, and living very hand-to-mouth, I had to let this fictional character venture down these mental as well as, you know, in her actions, these roads that I wouldn't necessarily go down in real life um, in order to not let my own sort of resentment and anger and envy and hunger um, overwhelm me. And you sort of touched on this in the first part, but obviously when you're, you know, you're an employee in somebody else's home, but in an incredibly intimate way in an intense way and doing an you know an incredibly intimate job so to what extent you know it can be it obviously can be difficult to sort of and that's obviously what happens in the novel as well to to keep that divide between being an employee and being a friend yeah well also as a a, a white 
educated nanny in New York City. Um, I think I was given a level of trust that a lot of my fellow employees, my the fellow nannies that I worked with who were just as good, if not better nannies than I was, my employers and as well as their friends and the, the parents of the children that I would have playdates with, they all sort of looked at me as if I were another mother. And that was a little bit disorienting for me because that's not how I felt. No. That's not the role that I was hired to fill. Um, but I was often entrusted with you know, very personal information in a way that was almost uncomfortable um, from everyone. You know, I sort of expected it from the other nannies because, of course, there's going to be gossip among my my coworkers. But I didn't expect the the parents to talk to me about their marriages or their their own personal work drama or, you know, very personal things like that. And how did the the actual writing of the book come together again? I mean, obviously, I know you studied writing but you also you involved in sort of storytelling nights and things and and I wonder to what extent those sort of things enabled you to I don't know I guess workshop it or whatever as as you were going on um so I actually I was writing a different book when I was at Columbia mm-hmm. and that novel I I sent out I was young I was 23 when I started writing it and I sent it out to agents immediately after I graduated and couldn't find representation for it I think it's important to talk about these kind of things because there are a lot of writers who you see and you sort of think oh that's their first book like mm-hmm. and they made such a splash with it but um it's not usually the case. Usually we all have it's a... the first book you got published. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Most of us have, I, I think, several um, bad books tucked away in drawers that we feel very embarrassed whenever we look at. So I wrote another novel, and then I spent a year sort of coming to terms with the rejection of that. And I also think, like, some of the resentment and um, anger that I felt about trying to break into this industry and failing also comes through in devotion in not direct ways, but subtle ways. So I spent a year uh, sort of figuring out what I was going to do next. And I started writing a short story. I started writing a short story that got longer and longer and longer. And that's what ended up becoming the novel. But I thought I thought maybe I'd do a short story about taking care of children. So not necessarily just nannies, but, you know, mothers and fathers and people working with young children. And it ended up just being one single book. I have a a workshop group who I spent several years working working with um, before sending this one out to agents. So this went through maybe four rounds of edits before I sent it to my agent, and then another two rounds of edits with my agent, and then another two rounds of edits with my editor as well. So it's been it's been through the ringer. It's been a long ride. Um, let's talk a, a couple of themes of the book, and and as you as you've already mentioned again. Um, it explores ideas of female friendship. Tell me about that. I think I've always been interested in female friendship. I think it's um, it's something that can be very, very intense when you're young, almost like a romantic relationship. Before I started dating boys, I had these very, very intense friendships. The sort of friendships when, you know, you you have a phone call with a boy and the only thing that you're thinking about the entire time you're talking to the boy is calling your girlfriend to tell her exactly what was said because that relationship is so much more fulfilling. Um, and that kind of energy 
has always fascinated me in writing. I think it's shown up in just about everything that I've ever written. Um, and you've also mentioned the idea of privilege as well. And I wanted to talk about, obviously, the class differences, inequality. But I guess specifically privilege, both, you know, the, the, the financial kind. But also, as, you, as you've mentioned from your own experience, you know, um, Ella is, you know, a young, attractive white woman, which brings also a certain a certain level of privilege within, certainly within the work she's doing, but also just in the... Uh, in the way, you know, the, the, at the beginning of the book, she's... I don't want to give too much away because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really brilliant start, but although it's, it's mentioned in most of, most of the reviews I've read. But, you know, but she's basically trading on her looks to survive mm-hmm. at the beginning of the book as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually... I was reading Jean Reese's Good Morning Midnight when I kind of realized how to open the book because the book lacked... Uh, the first couple of chapters didn't exist for a very, very long time. They were maybe the last thing that I wrote. And um, Jean Reese has a, a flashback in that book to, you know, trying and failing to get someone to buy her dinner when she was very, very hungry in Paris. And that chapter had such a big effect on me um, because I was thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, privilege does manifest as a as a young, attractive woman um, and how there's maybe not nearly as many opportunities to be down and out when you can just get someone to buy you whatever you need. And I was thinking I was thinking about that because that's the way that Ella sees Lonnie. She's never had to want for anything in her life because of the way that she looks and the circumstances in which she was born into. And to a certain extent, Ella is exactly the same way, but doesn't realize it. Can we talk about what other writers are an influence on you? Yeah, yeah. Like everyone else, I uh, I devoured the Elena Ferrante novels, and I was definitely thinking about um, my brilliant friend when I started writing this and the relationship between the two women. Um, I also love Alexandra Kleeman and her novel, You Two Can Have a Body Like Mine. We talked about that on this show. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. It, I mean, it's just, it's a brilliant novel. Mm. It's nothing like my novel in terms of tone or writing. You know, I take a very different approach, but there are a lot of the same themes of the ways that women look at each other and use each other to form their personalities and how kind of creepy that can be. And Jean Reese, like I mentioned, I could go on, but maybe I'll maybe I'll leave it at three. <laughs> Well, to finish up, can I get you to, to read us a bit of devotion, if you would? Yes. So this is starting in the middle. I started opening drawers I had no business opening, taking an inventory of her home in a notebook. I wrote it all down, partially to slow my progress. I was conscious that I could look through everything, every nook and cranny in a matter of days, or hours even, depending on how well-behaved the baby was, but this gave me a sick feeling, like eating an entire cake by myself. I could digest the secret information only in thin slices. Listing everything I found was a way of considerably protracting the process. Junk drawer, kitchen, I wrote one day, light bulbs, batteries, rubber bands, thumbtacks, empty baby food jar, yellow-handled scissors, large white doily folded in tissue paper. 
Another day, I swung the door of her medicine cabinet open, and I was immediately enraged by the lack of products, the empty shelf space. I found the cheap tube of liquid eyeliner Lonnie used to dress up, a single bottle of ballerina pink nail polish, French men's cologne with a black and silver label, James's shaving set, a tube of coral lipstick, a slippery jar of coconut oil sat on top of the cabinet near the vanity lights, a few globs in the process of dripping down into the cabinet. That was all. I slid the shower curtain back and examined the caddy hanging from the nozzle. Peppermint shampoo, a diluted jar of apple cider vinegar she probably used as conditioner. Simple Castile soap and a goo-filled jar without a label. I opened it, ran the product between my fingers, tasted it with the tip of my tongue. Coconut oil and salt. What had I been hoping to find? A complicated skincare routine that would explain her utter porelessness? Expensive hair masks? A lot of unnoticeable makeup? Something that said, I am this beautiful because of class. Something that said, if I lacked funds, I might be as flawed as you are. I wrote it all down. The cologne was labeled 1899, a date instead of a name. This struck me as romantic. The coral pinks of the lipstick and nail polish also struck me as romantic. I had probably ten tubes of cheap lipstick, at least ten bottles of nail polish at home, accumulated since adolescence, half of them gone gloppy, packed in my suitcase each time I moved as if they were precious. It was much more beautiful to have only one, the perfect one. I had the sensation of stepping blindly as I listed the contents of her house's hidden spaces, of grasping at textures, trying to make out changes in light. I didn't know what it was yet that I was inside, only that whatever I was immersed in was larger than my current understanding. I was going through the rooms of her mind, secret arrangements, shadows and light. There's something feminine about boxes. Nothing I opened revealed anything about James. It's girls who hide objects inside other objects. Jewelry boxes, hope chests, doll houses, decorative compacts with mirrors inside, boxes of love notes, tampons. In her nightstand, there was a wooden box with a peony inlay on top and a mirror inside, which reflected the contents when opened. I found a small jar of tiny pink crystals on a string, a lock of blonde hair tied with a gold ribbon, an old dead corsage, a folded note in someone else's handwriting. On the balcony, I saw a girl, fucking asshole, who made a jerk of herself and delighted in it. Is it good? I asked her. It is crappy crappy, she said, but I do it because it is crappy and because it is vain. I copied the Stephen Crane satire into my notebook. I described the corsage, once pink roses, yellowed baby's breath, rhinestones on hair-thin wires. I couldn't find any of the writing she was supposedly working on, either in the desk or online, but I found old notebooks inside a small chest in her office. She wrote stray phrases and paragraphs without reference to one another. So many men without women... Jean says something like, when in love, one survives on air and cold water. All I want are apricots and strawberries. There was a whole page where she cut the name Johnny from magazines and books and pasted them together. There were doodles. She was a good artist, always body parts that let off the page. 
Little hands and yo-yos, braids coming from nowhere, girls' legs descending from the top of the paper in saddle shoes and lacy socks with bleeding knees. What revealed more than the journals were old notes from school friends folded into tiny rectangles with pull tabs that popped the corners out. There was a stack of these inside an unused Chinese food box in a desk drawer. I imagined them falling from her high school locker when she pulled it open, the pleasure she would have felt. The same pleasure I felt now, discovering them. The same pleasure I had once felt when notes fell from my own locker years ago. I ran into Mr. Mullaney at Mimi's on Friday. He told me he thought we were kindred spirits or something. He also told me he thought we'd been together in a past life. The thing is, I don't not believe in past lives. I actually think the idea of them is pretty cool, but he's an old skis with shit always stuck in his teeth, so I just told him he'd have to find me in his next life. What is wrong with us that these guys like us? Patterns emerged within the notes, which I told myself were clues. Multiple girls had been banned from talking to Lonnie by their parents, though they clearly found ways around this by simply saying they were meeting different friends and passing notes or chatting online instead of talking on the phone. Older men were often mentioned as having creepy attachments to the girls, Lonnie, her friends, or the group as a whole. It was difficult to decipher how old these old men were or how the girls knew them, whether they were parents or teachers or men they met at parties or bars. This was never desirable. They may have admitted to teasing them a little, but it always ended in obvious rejection. At least, that's what the girls always claimed. Why the men continued to pursue them was a constant source of poorly concealed delight and intrigue for them. Lonnie's girlfriends were repeatedly taken advantage of. They never said rape. They never seemed to think these instances were anything more than annoying, but phrases like, I was too drunk to stop him, I wouldn't have let him sober, were all over the place. Was this a way to spin regrets into victimization? Or had Lonnie grown up entrenched in a culture of date rape? Had they just come to expect that it was something that happened if they got drunk with boys? These notes were probably not very different from the ones I had passed in school with girlfriends of my own, but Lonnie had kept them. I had not, so there was no way to remember, no way to compare. I also found a childhood jewelry box, shaped like a piano, velvet-lined, with a ballerina pirouetting to the tinkling tune of the Nutcracker Suite when open. But instead of jewelry, inside I found baby teeth in little compartments, a whole set, incisors, canines, molars, their insides browned with decay. I arranged them on my palm in order, ran my fingers over their jagged edges. Lonnie's childhood mouth, kept inside pink velvet, this was so perfect, it filled me with an unexplainable rage. I slipped one, an eye tooth, into my pocket. So I've been talking to Madeline Stevens. We've been talking about her debut novel, Devotion, which is out in the UK from Faber. Madeline, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. 
Thanks for listening.